From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we want to talk about the most trusted man in Trump's White House, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who's been in the news a lot lately. Amy Willens will be here with the Jared Report. Also, Al Franken, senator from Minnesota, he's got a new number one best-selling book out. It's called Al Franken, Master of the Senate. We talked to him about his last number one bestseller back in 2003. That one was called Lies and the Lying Liars that Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. First up, part two of our Naomi Klein interview. Her last book, This Changes Everything, was an instant New York Times bestseller and was translated into over 25 languages. She writes all over the place, including The Nation, and she's a Puffin Writing Fellow at The Nation Institute. Her new book is No Is Not Enough. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list at number two. It's the highest she's ever been. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be with you, John. want to try to understand what kind of a figure Trump is. I have a lot of friends who say he's not really part of the corporate ruling class. He's a New York real estate guy. He rents apartments and owns buildings and the real Wall Street types and hedge fund execs and corporate CEOs wouldn't have anything to do with a real estate guy and his, you know, supermodel girlfriends. You think this is wrong in that Trump represents a very important new face of, uh, of capitalism. It's always been true that certain sort of genteel elites have been embarrassed by Trump's crassness, right? But boy, have they made their peace with him, yes. you know, and fast. Yes. I mean, he's got five former Goldman Sachs executives in his cabinet. So this idea that he's somehow apart from from this safer, kinder corporate elite out there that is supposedly going to save us from Trump, uh, which is some sort of narrative I've seen, is, is absurd. I mean, the market cheered on news of Trump's victory. And the more he has advanced this radical pro-corporate agenda, 15% flat tax, getting rid of the estate tax, chipping away at Social Security, appointing people like Betsy DeVos to uh, be Secretary of Education, who, if she got her way, would unleash a frenzy of school privatization, open up new markets. I mean, this is a deepening of the neoliberal project. It is not a new phenomenon, what we're seeing. What is new about it is this sort of the utility of the of the buffoon, of the showman, of the reality TV show star to the advancement of that project. And I don't think they knew this would happen. I mean, they clearly were wrong. They thought, you know, some of them thought Hillary was a safer bet. Some of them thought Jeb Bush was a safer bet. But I think it's Christmas morning, you know, because here's Trump putting on a nonstop reality show that has our entire media class, you know, with a few exceptions, completely addicted I mean, what could be better than who's going to be voted off the Trump administration right up to the possibility of the president himself? Who's going to be sacked this week? Um, who's going to who's going to testify, you know, and betray this week? Find out after these commercials. I mean, it is gold. And every cable news network is seeing their better ratings um, than they ever have. They can't stop 
looking in the same way that they couldn't stop looking during the campaign, which is what won it for Trump. All of this, um, you know, the fact that he 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 got so much more coverage than any of the other candidates, so much more than Bernie. There was so little coverage of policy, and that, you know, then there were all these mea culpas, you know. Oh no, we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have, you know, just shown like three hours of footage of an empty podium waiting for Trump to show up, you know. But they've learned nothing because they are doing the exact same thing now with all eyes on the Trump show. And meanwhile, Dodd Frank is being dismantled. Uh, you know, we're seeing this massive tax and corporate giveaway disguised as a health care bill. This whole infrastructure boondoggle turns out to not be a massive investment in the public sphere, which is what Trump campaigned on, but actually yet another giveaway. The first announcement has to do with air traffic control privatization. I mean, how much coverage of that did you see? So so this is a new recipe, and, and I think they're loving it. <laughs> it's very synergistic. I never watched The Apprentice, but apparently you have. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd watched a little bit of it when it first came out because I am interested in reality TV shows because they are this amazing kind of capitalist burlesque. Back, you know, to the first season of Survivor where there was this whole drama about the fact that the winner of the first season was, was this guy, Richard Hatch, who everyone hated. So it was, it's this structure that rewards being a complete asshole. So it was built for Trump. <laughs> um, but until The Apprentice, there was this pretext that creating a structure that encouraged a group of people to turn on each other for a pot of gold was not actually about capitalism. It was about, you know, your ability to survive in the wild or, you know, what kind of roommate you were. But then... The, the the brilliance of The Apprentice was just taking the mask off, you know, and they said the jungle is New York City, where, you know, the jungle is, is the market. And it's this world of of losers and winners, and Trump's the guy who's going to turn you into a winner, and you're going to step on as many people as possible along the way, and that's what's going to make it more fun. And, um, you know, I think in terms of understanding his relationship with his base, we have to understand the formula that has been working for Trump for so long, which is this, I'm going to turn you into the, a winner in a world of a small group of winners and hordes of locked out losers. And the fact that those people are losing makes your winning all the sweeter, right? Like we're not, this is not about everybody winning, despite what, you know, he, he's saying to his base, you know, you're going to get tired of winning. <laughs> you're going to be winning so much, but you know, we're going to kick out those Mexicans and lock up those Muslims and USA, USA, USA. You know, we're all in Trump's reality show now. And it is, um, you know, when I say that, it's not to belittle it. Real people die in this show, um, but it is still a show. And I think he understands it as such. You mentioned Trump's uh, view of us as the doubters and the haters. There are actually a lot of people who he would call the doubters and the haters. A significant majority of Americans disapprove of Trump. He's the least popular president in American history. Single-payer health care, Medicare for all, has majority support. It seems like there isn't a tremendous hill to climb in convincing people about this. I don't think there is. I think that, that the biggest obstacle is the Democratic Party that is afraid of 
of, a, of economic populism. You know, when you look at the disdain with which Bernie's base is treated, as if, what is the end game of this? You know, I, I you know, my Twitter feed is filled with people saying, they're not real Democrats. It's like, so, so what is the end game? Like, are you saying you want 13 million people who voted for Bernie in the primaries to leave the Democratic Party and start their own party? <laughs> because a lot of people are talking about that. So I think there is, there's, there's, there's a profound battle going on that has to do with how profitable neoliberalism has been for uh, an elite class within the Democratic Party. Also, how expensive elections have become, right? I mean, we have to talk about electoral reform. I'm not satisfied with this idea that you can beat the billionaires at their own game if every race is going to be, you know, tens of millions of dollars, every single one. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, just presidential races anymore, which are now over a billion dollars, right? So, so long as it costs as much as it costs to run, that's going to be a massive barrier in the face of putting forward policies that are about redistributing wealth. Let's be frank, because even even with all the small donors, you still have to go to a donor class that is the beneficiaries of this massive wealth stratification. And they are not going to like it if you're running on a platform that is telling the truth about the fact that we need to redistribute wealth, that we need progressive taxation, which means they're going to have to pay significantly more taxes so that we can have universal health care and free college tuition. And coming back to Corbyn, you know, his, his, his campaign slogan was for the many, not the few, you know, and you could see the Democrats being like, Uh-oh. well, we'll just take the first part <laughs> for the many. <laughs> We do have, you know, Warren Buffett, the second richest man in America, is for higher taxes on the wealthy here. We're recording in California. Tom Steyer, billionaire, supporting the climate change movement. It seems like, though, you're not that enthusiastic about, say, Tom Steyer running for governor of California. Look, for me, it's not about that. It's it's about this equation that just because Tom Steyer is a billionaire, he should therefore be, be, be no. In Steyer's case, he has been really a, a stalwart in the in the climate movement, and this this is different. I mean, what I'm arguing against, and you know, what I'm the context that I'm trying to put Trump in, is this very bipartisan project of assuming that just because somebody has managed to create billions of dollars in a deregulated market, often through very very shady means. They therefore are such a genius, and the, the evidence of this is their wealth, that we can therefore trust them to solve all kinds of problems that we used to do solve, try to solve democratically with public institutions. And the epitome of this is Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and this, you know, this, this very untransparent organization run by Gates, his wife, his father, and Warren Buffett that has more power of the U.S. education system than, you know, many would argue the Department of Education and the outsized power that he has exerted over agriculture in Africa, um, you know, the priorities of health organizations, the World Health Organizations, how we're fighting infectious diseases. Why are we delegating so much power to him? Because of his wealth. And the whole model of philanthropic capitalism is 
this idea that we don't need laws, policies, regulations to solve our collective problems. We just need to ask Richard Branson to go to the Clinton Global Initiative, make a voluntary pledge that is entirely unenforceable. And you know, I wrote about this in This Changes Everything. So I believe this is all part of the road that led to Trump standing before the American people and saying, I have no qualifications for this job, but I'm so rich that you can trust me to do all of these things I'm totally unqualified for. And so I just kind of want to get at the psychology of equating great wealth with wisdom in all things, because it's I think it's a deep, deep, deep sickness. Trump has pulled us, the United States, out of the Paris Climate Accord, but that so that means the United States government is no longer going to take the lead on this. But what about the state of California taking the lead and Oregon and Washington and New York and Virginia and my state of Minnesota? Can we have a green energy revolution without Donald Trump? We can. I mean, this is the good news. The good news is we do not get our energy from Washington. Um, there are things that that national governments can do to accelerate a transition. They can put the right market incentives in, in, in place with a strong national carbon tax, but you can also have state-level well-designed carbon taxes. They can make big public investments in renewable energy. There hasn't been enough of that anyway. That's also something that can be done in a state level. The good news is that there have been incredible breakthroughs in renewables in, in, in the past decade, largely because of huge amounts of public money that has been spent in R&D by countries like Germany and China, which has brought the, we're all benefiting, honestly, from Germany and China's huge investments in, in, the, in the renewable sector, because now solar is on par financially with fossil fuels. So I say in the book that Trump comes to us at the worst possible moment in human evolution in that this is the moment when we need to leap forward. But the the silver lining is is that the conditions for that transition, for that leap um, to the next economy are good enough because of these other forces that that it can happen without Trump. And, And I think that it was really exciting to see how the world and subnational governments in the United States responded to Trump's announcement about Paris, immediately saying, well, we're going to do more. You know, we're going to we're going to increase our ambition. Announcements like the mayor of Pittsburgh, after Trump invokes Pittsburgh in his speech, saying I was elected by the people of Pittsburgh, not the people of Paris. And then the mayor stepped forward and said, well, actually, Pittsburgh voted for Clinton. <laughs> and I hereby pledge to get the city to 100 percent renewables by 2035, which is frankly, the, the most ambitious goal in the country um, and, and exactly the kind of ambition that we lacked during the Obama years. Uh, so, you know, if people understand that there is no help coming from the federal level and metabolize that to understand that it means that in every space that Trump does not control, whether it is your university endowment, whether it is your city government, your state government, that means Every one of those spaces needs to work at their maximum capacity and do so much more than they were doing before. And I think we're starting to see that, you know, on several fronts, including healthcare, where the the danger of what is being proposed on healthcare in Washington is so great that it has increased ambition in California and the movement to get to single payer. So, you know, if we see that on, you know, on multiple fronts, 
then the exciting part is that people are going to get proof of concept where they live, that it is possible to create jobs uh, in other ways uh, than what Trump is proposing. And, and that is going to make, I think, increase the appetite for a more transformative politics at the federal level. Debuting at number two on the New York Times bestseller list, No Is Not Enough. Naomi, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. So great to see you again, John, as always. Now it's time for the Jared Report with Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's the award-winning author of several books, especially on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Always fun to be here. We're going to talk about Jared Kushner, the most trusted man in the Trump White House. Recently, he was on page one of the L.A. Times. The story was headlined, Nations Feel Cut Off from the Trump White House. What was this about? This is a problem Trump has been having in a lot of areas, but especially at the State Department, where he simply has not made appointments or filled ambassadorships um, throughout the world. So there's a lot of problem for people that just don't, foreign ministries don't know how to communicate. They're used to communicating with the desk uh, and the ambassador from the United States, who knows about their area or their specific country. And now that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of frightening, that headline about Jared Kushner, the most trusted man in the White House, because He doesn't really know anything about these places, but everybody's communicating with him now because he's perceived he's been given a lot of uh, purview over foreign affairs and people are beginning to go to him when they have a problem or an issue with the United States. And according to this L.A. Times article, the Saudis went even farther than using Jared as their communications link to the Trump White House. The Saudi king. He skipped over one of the crown princes who was supposed to be the next king to go to this Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman, who's known as MBS, uh, is a 30 year old. And after the 2016 election, he and Jared became friendly, sharing dinners, exchanging phone calls, apparently. And then the two of them worked together to help plan and influence the visit of Trump to Riyadh uh, last month when Trump bowed before the king and accepted his Medal of Honor. So the successor in Saudi Arabia was picked because he knows Jared Kushner. Perhaps we're leaping to a conclusion since... Saudi royal politics are fairly complicated. We cannot know what the king really thinks of the uh, presumptive crown prince or what he thinks of this MBS person. But yeah, it would seem that at least in the next four years, that guy can continue to be crown prince, not king yet, and have a lot of uh, clout with Jared because they have a personal relationship. Let's just take a step back and remind us who exactly Is Jared Kushner now the most trusted man in the Trump White House? We know he comes from a New Jersey real estate family. What else should we know about him? Well, so he's an heir to this really pretty vast fortune. He became CEO of the holding and development company called Kushner Companies while his father was in prison for tax evasion, illegal campaign donations and witness tampering, just the kind of people he comes from. He decided when he was 25 to buy the New York Observer, which was this really great 
terribly New York-centric newspaper of gossip about everything and, and no holds barred and no, you know, take no prisoners kind of newspaper and turned it into a kind of publicity vehicle for certain real estate developers with whom Jared was friendly. I had a friend who ran the paper at the time and he said about Jared, this guy doesn't know what he doesn't know. <laughs> He went to Harvard and to NYU. He, well, that's impressive. Uh, exactly. Very impressive, except when you know that his father pledged $2.5 million to Harvard before he matriculated and pledged $3 million and sat on the board of NYU before he got his graduate degree, before he was admitted as a graduate student in law and business. So, yeah, he has an impressive academic career. And then he bought this important building on Fifth Avenue. We've mentioned it before, 666 Fifth Avenue. You have to worry about a person whose major holding is something that has the number 666 <laughs> and whose initials mean just kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's been a lot about his purchase of 666 Fifth Avenue. It lost half its value in the real estate uh, collapse of the fall of 2008, and he had to sell 49.9% of it. But just recently, the New York Times published a extensive investigative piece on the other holdings of the Kushner companies. Tell us about those. This is, uh, I think it's 20,000 units of low-income housing in the Maryland market that the Kushners have bought. And one of their methods for dealing with their low-income tenants is uh, legal harassment. So there are something like 548 cases that the Kushner companies have outstanding against their own tenants in these low-income uh, residences. And and this is part of what makes money for Kushner companies. It's not just these, you know, major pieces of New York real estate. But what what's most interesting about 666 right now is that the um, chairman of Anbang Holding Company in China, Wu Xiaowei, he has been detained mysteriously in China on corruption charges. And this was the company that was offering the Trumps a very, 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 not sorry, not the Trumps, the Kushners, a very, very sweet deal for 666 Fifth Avenue, a, a deal that would effectively have gotten them out of their financial troubles with this very uh, problematic holding that they have. Now, you might not think that somebody whose expertise is in low-income rental properties in the state of Maryland would be qualified to bring peace to the Middle East. But Donald Trump sent his son-in-law, Jared, to Israel and to the Palestinian Authority. With that mission recently, I just want to review with you how Jared did. I know we don't yet have peace in the Middle East, but but wait, I just want to say one thing. A company that is really expert at pushing tenants out of their houses might have something to say about the way the Holy Land has been run for the past, say, 50 plus years. Yeah, Jared announced before he was leaving that his approach, his strategy to bring peace to the Middle East would be to ask each side what their priorities were. Seems like a reasonable way to begin a negotiation. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, first of all, doesn't it sound like the father of young children? Now, kids, let's sit down. What do you want and what does Arabella want? It's extremely unsophisticated. And plus, doesn't he know already going in what they want? And, and probably he has been somewhat instructed, I like to think. 
And he's not just going to sit down with Israelis and Palestinians and say, like, guys, what do you want? But it's disturbing to hear that kind of talk, empty, empty, meaningless stuff. In fact, we've known for decades. For decades what everybody wants. We've known for decades and we've known for decades. The problem is they want the same thing. When you're trying to solve an irreconcilable problem, you can't just sit down and say, well, what do you want and what do you want? It's a very subtle negotiation and has been for the past 20 years. And there are these maps. Uh, you were Jerusalem correspondent for the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I'm sure even then, whatever happens, there's going to be a trading of land for peace. These maps have been... They've been drawn for years. They're, they're, they're a done deal, you know. But now what has happened under the Netanyahu government is a continual flouting of the the deeper meaning of those maps. And so for someone to negotiate this, he can't just ask people what they want. He has to put full pressure on them. And I don't know that Jared Kushner is the type of person who is going to put full pressure on the Israelis. Uh, The latest report that I read said that as a result of the Palestinian authorities' unhappiness with their meeting with Jared, the Trump administration is considering breaking off Mideast peace talks. (laughs) That's so Trump, isn't it? Not considering replacing Jared with someone whom both sides might find amenable. They're considering not having peace talks because the Palestinians weren't nice about Jared. Besides, they barely have Mideast peace talks. They don't really have Mideast I know, breaking them off seems a bit highfalutin for what's going on right now. Premature, you. But, you know, the thing about Jared Kushner is he's an Orthodox Jew. He has known Bibi Netanyahu since he was a little boy. He had to vacate his childhood bed so that not yet Prime Minister Netanyahu could sleep in it when he was visiting New Jersey. They have shared a bed, essentially. Um, so when your Mideast peace negotiator is essentially in bed with the Prime Minister of Israel, you have a problem. Jared is known not only as a real estate maven, um, not only for being young and good-looking, he's also an expert, has been an expert, in keeping a low-profile and especially he's known for speaking only in private. He speaks only behind the scenes. He made his first public speech at the White House uh, recently, where one of his many other assignments alongside bringing peace to the Middle East is that he's the leader of the effort to upgrade uh, American technology for the United States government. Uh, let's listen to a clip of Jared Kushner's first public address as a White House uh, staff member. Here he's speaking to the CEOs and gurus of American technology. We've assembled a very impressive group of leaders from the private sector and are putting them to work here today to work on some of the country's biggest challenges that will make a very meaningful difference to a lot of its citizens. This is Technology Week here at the White House, and we are proud to be kicking it off with your engagement and assistance as we work to modernize the government's technology infrastructure. Before I came to Washington, many warned me that the bureaucracy would resist any change that we tried to implement. So far, I have found exactly the opposite. To date, we've been working with hundreds of talented civil servants, men and women who want to serve their country and see their government do better. We have challenged ourselves to pursue change that will provide utility to Americans far beyond our tenure here. Together, we have set ambitious goals and empowered interagency teams to tackle our objectives. It's working and it's very exciting. 
Jared Kushner speaks for the first time. It's very exciting. Oh, uh, my God. It's not exciting. That was so not exciting. Is anyone still listening out I'm, there? I'm worried that we may have lost half of our audience uh, uh, during that one-minute clip. What does it sound like to you? Well, he sounds, uh, it has been noted that he sounds a lot like the young Michael Sarah, the movie star who is the eternal adolescent. He's just very, very bland. And one of the things about Kushner also is that not only does he not speak in public, he's like this presence who flits through the background of meetings. You, you, if you look at photographs of what's going on in the White House, you see this silent person with his hands folded most of the time. He looks like an undertaker or something uh, moving around in the background. Even when he's in the foreground, he seems to be in the background. Like when he met with Netanyahu uh, recently in Jerusalem, he walks into the room, if you look at the clip, and Bibi's all like the gladdest person who ever lived. And he looks like the cat who swallowed the canary, the big, broad grin on his face. And it's like Jared, the representative of the United States of America, which basically underwrites Israel, like our money underwrites that country. And he barely says a word and Netanyahu greets him. And in that moment, Netanyahu says this great little Freudian slip. Instead of saying, I'm looking forward to working with you, in the next four years. He says, I'm looking forward to working you in the next four years. And you think to yourself, yep, that's what you're going to do, Bibi, because you can. This guy is nowhere. Maybe Netanyahu's command of English is a little weak. Yeah, no, I don't think so. He's as fluent as you or I. One last thing before uh, we go here. If you Google Jared and Russia, you get about 12 million results. A lot of these are about Jared's meeting with Putin representatives asking for a secret communications back channel, perhaps at a Russian diplomatic facility. Why would you need a secret back channel using Russian communications? Okay, before addressing that seriously, I have to say that Stephen Colbert just came back from Russia and he said, oh my God. Putin is in charge there, too. <laughs> yeah, so the only reason you would need a secret Russian back channel if you're an American diplomat or official is to keep secrets from the Americans, from the American intelligence establishment, basically. And that's extremely disturbing. Amy Willens with The Jared Report. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. Al Franken has a new book that's out now. It's called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. We'll be speaking with him about it here in a few weeks. But today we wanted to recall our conversation with him about his previous number one bestseller, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. We spoke with him about it in 2003 at KPFK in Los Angeles. Al Franken, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, on this show, we do a, a feature called Your Minnesota Moment, <laughs> news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Okay. And uh, back in August, we did a, a segment of Your Minnesota Moment on the topic, Minnesota native sued by Fox News. You, of course, are from St. Louis Park. You grew up in St. Louis Park. Right. And Suburb of Minneapolis for your listeners. 
And uh, Minnesota is just uh, all over this story in, in, in so many ways. You found out that Fox was suing you while you were on vacation with your family in Duluth. No, I was in Italy. Uh, <laughs> but well, and then you close. I was you, in Umbria. <laughs> you you wrote uh, uh, this that, yeah. this this number one uh, best selling book with the help of a bunch of very brilliant students from the University of Minnesota. Oh, actually, they were from Harvard. Uh, and uh, and and this whole thing started when you had a confrontation with with Bill O'Reilly. At the Book Expo at the Mall of America. <laughs> well, it was the Book Expo, but it was uh, not at the Mall of America. It was at the Luge, the Ice Luge at the St. Paul Cab. <laughs> no, no, it was in here in L.A. But I'm I'm from St. Louis Park. <laughs> I am. And, and I understand. I, I want to make sure that I, we get these right because your book is about the lies, the errors, the mistakes made by the Wall Street Journal and Coulter Fox News. So I just want to make sure we don't make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's why I'm correct here, here on this program. So I understand that in 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 the Fox News court papers, they described you as tall, good looking, and above average. Uh, no. They called me deranged, <laughs> shrill, uh, unstable, intoxicated, uh, a parasite, a sea level commentator, and I think that was it. But they didn't actually call me those things. They said the press had called me those things. Oh, okay. And the press that they were they cited for those were uh, were from the what I call the prestigious internet. <laughs> and they were uh, 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 right-wing websites uh, from, uh, in fact, one of the websites on its homepage brags that even if you're an amateur writer, uh, if you submit to us, you have a far greater chance of being published than on almost any other website. So that's the high standards to which Fox held itself in the the complaint, which, by the way, had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> so, so uh, of course, what what put this book on the front page of all the newspapers was that Fox uh, lawsuit. Yeah. How did you come up with the idea of getting Fox News to to sue you? I hypnotized them. <laughs> um, we were at the radio and TV correspondence dinner where I spoke in 2002, and uh, Ailes and uh, O'Reilly came up to me, and they actually liked what I had done and uh, I said I looked in their eyes I put them I hypnotized them I put them under and I said um, I'm going to come out with the next book I come out you're going to sue me and when I snap my fingers you'll forget everything I said and uh, they uh, they didn't realize it but uh, I, had, I had hypnotized them and to this day they, they don't think I did <laughs> Uh, we're, we're speaking with Al Franken about his number one best-selling book, Lies and the Lying Liars. You tell them a fair and balanced look at the right. Of course, that lawsuit was about your use of the term fair and balanced, which That's Fox right. News regarded as their copyrighted uh, property. Trademarked. Tra trademark property. Trademark mm -hmm. property. Uh, uh, do you think Fox News has, has learned its lesson from, from this episode? You mean don't listen to O'Reilly when it comes to lawsuits? I think they may have listened to learn that one. I think they also learned something. I think basically what happened was O'Reilly, after this dust-up we had in, in L.A. at the Book Expo uh, in L.A., not at the Mall of America, uh, I think that 
he has been in an infantile rage since. And part of that infantile rage were, uh, led to the lawsuit. And I think Fox said, look, we just, he won't give up. We got to do it. Uh, and besides, our listener, you know, our viewers will be rooting for us anyway. And I think they, as, as, uh, Bush once said uh, he didn't mind being misunderestimated. I think they misunderestimated <laughs> the public reaction because no one thought this was a good idea. Uh, not literally no one, but I mean 99% of Americans n n know there's a First Amendment and know that satire is protected speech even if the object of the satire doesn't get it. That was Al Franken in 2003, after the publication of his number one bestseller, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. Of course, today, Roger Ailes is dead, and Bill O'Reilly has been fired, not for lying, but for sexual harassment. And Al Franken has a new number one bestseller. It's called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.